morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have cho- uh, students up through grade six, you want them in Sunday school, they can be dismissed at this time. It's good to be with you today, and I hope that this week has been a week that you've been in the Word as we start to approach the end of the year, and we're starting to think about what we would do differently as we go into a new uncertain year. I encourage you, one of the things that you want to add is your time in the Word. Make sure that uh, you set that aside as a daily time. It is one of those things that uh, will provide you the most benefit. Uh, the Lord has one will. We can understand what it is. He underst- uh, we see what He expects from us. We under- begin to understand the basic principles of the Word of God. Uh, this is what we have to live. We're being given everything we need to live for life and for godliness. And so we encourage you to make that commitment to do that. The rest of you, if you would, as uh, our, our students leave us, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Special thank you to Daniel Gillette for bringing the message last week as I was out of town. Conserve our time together. I want to read from this new section, uh, starting in verse 11 through verse 21. Let the Holy Spirit go to work. This is our habit. We'll be going through this section over the next several weeks, Lord willing, and breaking this down and uh, finding those things that the Lord would have us take away. Verse 11 says, I have become foolish, you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, but for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Verse 13, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. Certainly, verse 17. I have not taken advantage of you through any of those I've sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Verse 19, all this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Verse 24, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish and perhaps there will be strife and jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Stop right there. That's the end of chapter 12, as you can see. Difficult times are not over for Paul, and the reason why it's important is because many of the same things go on in the church today, so we'll find it to be just as relevant for us as it was for him. Of course, you won't find that in a church that just wants you to make you feel good. You're not going to hear anything about about, uh, repenting and impurity, morality, and sensuality, but you won't find that here as we get through verse by verse. We come to what we come to, and so it's our determination to teach the Word of God. Now, our last time together, we finished up this recent section of this letter that we marked as spiritual warfare. You can see that the spiritual warfare really isn't over for Paul, but in particular, walking the hard road, God's purposes and difficulty. 26 messages beginning 
in chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12 and verse 10 that dealt with hardship and difficulty. And because hardship and difficulty are part of each believer's life, I, I don't really feel like that um, we need to apologize for our pace through the section. I'm still not sure that we did it justice, uh, and I'm reminded, of course, for my sake as much as for yours, that every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God is tested. So we spend time with each of those things, and 2 Timothy, of course, 3, 16 and 17, not unfamiliar to you. All scripture is inspired by God. All of it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, you as well as me. So as a pastor, as I think about all of these things that we talk about, I'm always wondering if I've missed some important nuance or principle from our passage. I know that, um, and I'm well aware that, of course, those who want to be teachers, uh, be not many teachers, Paul said to the church, for those is a gr- theirs is a greater condemnation. And the reason why that is, of course, is because as you begin to teach the Word of God, you need to make sure that you do it correctly and you make a straight cut. That's what that means. Um, it uh, is making a straight cut and making sure we're saying exactly precisely what is put in the kitchen we carry it to the table and so I constantly have to ask the Lord to fill in where I know I have lacked and and the fact that we're constantly at war with a humanistic worldview that pretends to replace the sufficiency of scripture with the traditions of men and sets itself up as the true standard for real help in difficult times and and the fact that the world has bought into that, and so has the church for the most part, that the world has answers, and the sufficiency of Scripture is not valued, and it's not set aside for real answers to the hard things in life. We looked at a lot of that last time we were together. Those things make it all the more important that we make the proper applications, that we pull the passages out that are appropriate, and we understand the Scriptures. And fortunately, there will be, as is Paul's habit, some repeat and some reiteration from the Apostle Paul as we proceed through the remainder of this letter. Uh, but um, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, these two verses, beginning verse 9. And I want to look back there. And for the reasons I just named, and perhaps because I feel like uh, even through this last week and, and some of the things that uh, some of you are going through and others that I am uh, connected with, that perhaps it's still important that we make some emphasis here, some things that we haven't talked about. So you'll forgive me if I do reiterate some of these things and perhaps go Uh, from a different angle a little bit later in the message to help you. Because I found that even though we talk about this, this uh, difficulties in people's lives, suffering, hardship, uh, tend to really bring out the true you, doesn't it? It brings out the true me. We find out where we really are. We find out what our true answers, where we're seeking for our true answers. So so we're going to look at that. But I want you to look at uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Well, you you should have your Bible open, and you should have it, or a tablet or a phone. So you can actually see what we're looking at. You can make some notes there. And it'll be a blessing to you. And if you're a note taker on the back of your bulletin, I say this just, uh, just a few times, uh, make sure that you write some of those things down. The underlying things behind me will be your takeaways that can help you meditate on these things later. Verse 9 says, And he has said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Paul, as Paul has uh, revealed to the church that he had a vision of being in heaven. He got to spend time with the Lord. The Lord brought him up there, walked in the garden, if you will, and Paul comes back, and the Lord immediately gives him a demon to buffet him, to keep him humble. And verse 9 says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Paul asks for it to be removed. The Lord answers, No. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Verse 10, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, with difficulties. 
for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's the paradigm there. That, that's the difficult part, isn't it? To, to repeat that to yourself, perhaps, and not have a biblical worldview of, of suffering would just seem incongruous. We're not going to embrace that. That's the problem, isn't it? That, that's the problem. We, we can talk about this all we want, but then when it gets right down to where the rubber meets the road and the hardships come, we run to a therapist, don't we? We, we want to go talk to the world. We want to read a book about the world. How can we get through this? And we saw last time, as we mentioned, that we have we've really bought into the world's ideas and brought them into Christianity, that if you have a problem uh, and an issue or a dilemma, you're struggling with rejection or worry or some other difficult thing, that there has to be, number one, some immediate solution. That's, what we, that's where we are in the world today. You've got to resolve this. It's got to be fixed. I need to resolve it right now. And, uh, of course, we look to the world for answers. And irreparable damage has been inflicted, of course, on undiscerning or unsuspecting believers. So that's the second part. We think we need an immediate solution, and then we look to the world to give us that solution. And, of course, we, we even go to so-called Christian counselors who don't know what the Bible says, and that is very common, beloved. And they hand out solutions that aren't solutions at all. They're just more bondage. And I think that, and I think we've seen from examples that we've examined, that, that believers should be able to see at this point, at least academically, that with all the examples of troubles and where they might arise, that the right perspective is to understand that trouble is part of life, that uh, as sparks fly upward, so is man born to trouble. We're, we're going to have difficult times. The question is, what are we going to do when they come? And, and looking for a quick solution really preempts trying to discern what God is desiring to do in the middle of it. That's the first thing you need to remember. When you're trying to resolve this like right now, and the first question you're, not ask, you're asking is not, what do you want to teach me? How do you want to make me differently? Then we're missing the main point. And because God has purposes in our suffering. And sometimes we get to see God's purposes, and we find that they accomplish something really wonderful in our life, and that becomes a spiritual high point. Uh, and other times we don't know what he's doing, but that certainly shouldn't make us conclude because of that that God doesn't really love us or that it needs to be immediately resolved in order to prove to us that God's listening to our prayers. And neither of those things, of course, is the case, nor do we need to run to the world for solutions for our deep issues. Uh, the one who loves us most knows us best, and he's given grace for every issue. And, and our passage gave us some deep answers for some hard questions. That's really why we looked at it. In verse 8, Paul says, concerning this, this demon that's buffeting Paul, we don't know exactly what it was, whether it was physical hardship or whether it was the church really giving him so much difficulty and him, him being unable to fix any of that. He says, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Even Paul's asking the Lord for it to be taken away. Nobody's rejoicing, uh, nobody's rejoicing in the pain. Nobody likes that necessarily. But the first thing that we saw that was very, very important for the hard answers to difficult things in life is number one God uses suffering to draw us to himself when it happened to Paul he went to the Lord three times to pray and that was the first place that he needed to go and the question that we really need to ask is where do you go when difficult times come what's the first thing you think about when you're dealing with hardship and when you're at the bottom the world will run to a therapist you can go to a living God Paul faced a lot of trials uh, he went to the Lord. That was his habit. That's the only place to go because he found strength and wisdom that he needed. Verse 9 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. James 4, 6, Not 
place that's sufficient, he gives, it says in James, greater grace, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And we noted number two, which are solid answers for difficult and hard questions. In your suffering, you're often humbled, and you're broken, and you're repentant. And beloved, we know this, that when we become submissive and repentant, you become useful to God, and not before. And of course, he gives grace, and he says to the humble, he has said to me, that's what he said to Paul, it's in the perfect tense, I asked three times, but the standing answer will remain. I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to take the messenger from Satan away from you. I'm not going to deliver you, but I will give you more grace. I will give you enough so you can do what you need to do. And the last part of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. And as we said before, as you think about people who face martyrdom and they face hardship and the great heroes of the faith, they receive more than sufficient grace needed, didn't they? And you can tell that by their response. It's just like we can tell Paul understood what was going on by his response. Their response to hardship, their response even to martyrdom. But we'll never know that grace if we don't have difficulties that are going to call for it. You're never going to know that grace, and you're never going to know the joy of that grace and the exhilaration of that grace until you have to have that grace, see. And the third thing we said is, is we're really giving some uh, solid answers for difficult things. God will use difficulty to reveal your spiritual condition. When you're in the middle of your deepest sorrow and your hardest time, people will get to know the real you, and you'll get to know the real you, too. And you can ask that question right now. If you're in a hardship, where's the first place you went, and what's the cycle of your self-talk? If you look with spirit eyes, you know, God used Paul's difficulty to help him because God had something that he wanted Paul to be, and the proof of that was found in his response to the difficulty he was in. There wasn't a quick fix, and it wasn't going to be over soon. In verse 9, most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Number four, we, say, we said this. As you think about hardship and hard times and difficult people, God will use difficulty to show his power to deliver you from it or through it. Paul wasn't going to be delivered from it, so he was going to be delivered through it. And the Lord may allow trials into your life, but they're not outside his control, and he can bring you through. And we saw from Scripture that God is a dwelling place. Looked at that last time. He comes to your help. He's ready to give you grace to get through it or survive it and to flourish into the person that he wants to make, stepping up the grace that you need. And we saw from Isaiah chapter 43, and you can look at all these later. We've looked at them in the past. We see the Lord speaking to Israel, and he says, But now thus saith the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, just in general, in, in biblical interpretation, all the promises of God are true. They're just not all for you. And when you read a promise that's to some Old Testament person or whatever, you can't automatically assume that that promise is for you and he's going to fulfill it. Although that is very popular in Bible studies today, that's a bad way to go about understanding the Bible. And it leads to a lot of disillusionment because God hasn't promised to do some certain thing for you, okay? But when we look at this passage and we understand that God is a redeemer and he's talking to his people whom he has redeemed in the Old Testament, we connect with that, don't we? Because he is our redeemer as well. 
And so we can understand then the general principle, particularly in light of the context of all of our study up till now, that trouble is part of the human condition and that God has a plan for that and he wants us to uh, become a certain uh, person that he has planned through this difficulty. So we see then in the passage, he hasn't promised there'd be no waters and no rivers and no fire. In fact, the opposite. In the world, you're going to have trouble. In fact, the argument for biblical suffering and big bull hardship is its own undermining of the prosperity gospel. Because we, you can't have this understanding from the scripture, which is clear from throughout the scriptures, if then you're also holding to the prosperity gospel, because they will not mix. If God, God doesn't want you not only, uh, not only he, he's going to take you through, he's not going to even give you high waters, he's just going to give you a great life, right? He's going to promise you ease and make sure you have everything you need. And we, we understand he does provide all we need, he just doesn't do it in the way that we think he's going to do it. See? And his evaluation of our needs is a lot different than what our evaluations of our needs may be. See. Just promises to be there when we're going through. And of course, the grace is there, poured out to us in the full. It'll be sufficient, and that, that word sufficient is bulwark, strong enough to provide the support that we need. And so verse 10, Paul says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, yodikeo, well content with insults, I'm well content with distresses, I'm well content with persecution. Can you say that? Can, can you go through there and say, I'm well content with persecutions? I'm well content with insults, with difficulties. I'm well content for that, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And, and that, that uh, yo is well, and dokeo is to think, and, and that's um, the key. You're learning to think correctly. A sanctified mind. An approach to difficulty that's different, perhaps, than you've approached it before. You won the battle in the mind. Paul had that battle that is waged in all of our minds over feelings and a sense of entitlement and what I deserve and a pity party and the blame game and all the things that we do when difficult times come, we want to blame everybody and whatever, and that's not the point. It may be somebody's fault that you're going through a difficult time. That doesn't mean that God's not in it. It doesn't mean that he's not going to use it. And so number five, God will use difficulty and hardship to get you to the point where there is no more of you, and then he can begin to use his power in you to be really effective. Paul knows God's answer. God's not going to take it away. If there's going to be anything of eternal value, God is telling Paul, accomplished, it'll have to be me working through you. So I'm going to use whatever it takes to get you to that point. See? And of course, as we think about this, we all have anecdotal evidence in our own lives, don't we? I mean, some people talk about it all the time. Some people never talk about it. You have physical suffering, mental anguish maybe, disappointment, unfulfillment, weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, failures. And when those happen, it just crushes you, doesn't it? It empties out of you everything that you think is good about you, doesn't it? And when that happens, if we're thinking biblically about these things, they create this pressure so we can be then this clear channel through which the power of God can flow. But we have to win the battle of the mind first. We have to begin thinking when difficult things come, hardships come, if they're of our own making, if we're suffering because we allowed some certain thing in our life, we're uh, acting a certain way and this is what happened, whatever it is, or maybe it's uh, some unfair thing that somebody did to you, you need to start thinking this way. So if we're going to think like Paul, we're going to have to say, God is wanting to do something with me through this hardship, mark it, that may not end through this difficulty or difficult person, or this insult, or this betrayal, or my own personal failure, God is going to use this for his certain purposes. And when I feel so crushed, and I'm emptied, and I feel insufficient, now God can go to work, see? 
through you and through me and make himself apparent in your life. You see, when your human wisdom is out and when your human confidence is out and when your human ingenuity is out and when your solutions to the problems are out and you've got nowhere else to go and no place to turn but God, you are now in the most productive place that you can be, the most effective place. And we could put it this way. No one in the kingdom of God is too weak to be powerful. But many are too strong to be powerful. Many are completely sufficient in their own ability and in their own intellect and their own experiences and whatever it is. And they're too powerful to be really be used by God. So if we think about what's most important and what's going to last, and when we go to the kingdom, what we're going to take with us, it's important to realize that mo many of those things that we're going to learn that are going to be most valuable and, and the efforts that we're going to put in that were most effective for the eternal kingdom are going to be ones that we learned in difficult times and when we're crushed and when things are unfair and, and things are on us. You've got to have that in your mind. When you have nowhere to go, when you realize you're weak and you realize you can't fix it, Paul couldn't fix it. And there he is with nothing but God. And that was enough. He had to trust God's power, didn't he? Here's mighty Paul, powerful preacher, seemingly unafraid of anything. Fought wild beasts in Ephesus. We don't even have a record of that. And yet he just says it as just off the cuff. Why? Because it was just one of the things he knew that God was going to use, either bring him through it or bring him to heaven through it. And he was perfectly fine with that. Remember, we face death every day. And God has delivered us and will deliver us. We were, under, we were under the threat of death, but we trusted God who could raise the dead. See, he had that, he had that perspective. That's, that's a sanctified mind, beloved, that you don't, you're not born into the world that way, and certainly the way the world is now, you're not going to be conditioned in that way at all. You'll be conditioned that we need to get rid of our problems now. We're not trying to evaluate what perhaps is going on, and we need to find whatever solution it is and find some relief, see, without ever asking any questions about where this is coming from and whose hand is in it and what he wants us to learn. Paul was persecuted mercilessly. He'd been battered. He'd been hammered. He not only found sufficient grace, but he found that when he was finally crushed down to nothing, he became something at that point that God could use. And we saw that in the middle of these kinds of things, God just wants to flood you with grace, and, and there's always plenty. And sometimes I think that that's some of the problem, isn't it? That uh, we don't run to him first because we're not sure that we're going to get what we need. You know, Spurgeon is always very funny. If you've read any of his stuff, Prince of Preachers had all kinds of anecdotes. And, of course, uh, there's a book that's just about insulting things people said to him that has recorded. It's just, it's amazing. Um, not surprising, of course, the Apostle Paul was insulted constantly. But in his, in his biography, he recounted, he was riding home one evening and after a hard day at church, uh, a day full of work and difficult people and disappointment and failure. And he was feeling depressed. And the verse that we're studying, it says, came to him, and he remembered, my grace is sufficient for you. Of course, in his unique way of thinking things, he immediately compared himself to this little fish in the Thames River. Apparently, lest drinking of the river every day, so many pints, he might drink the Thames dry. And feeling insecure in that event, only to have the Thames say, drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for you. He goes on to say, he says, uh, he went on in his thoughts and he thought how ridiculous it was to dwell on his insecurities and his weaknesses as if, as if they were the problem instead of the solution and the answer to where he needed to be. 
And he compared himself to a little mouse in the granaries of Joseph in Egypt, afraid that he might exhaust the supplies of all the grain in the silos and starve to death. And having Joseph come along and sensing the mouse's fear, cheer up, little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for you. Or he went on and thought of himself as a man climbing to the top of the Alps and reaching the lofty summit, dreading to take a breath lest he might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere only to hear the Creator say, breathe away, little man, my air is enough. And all of those illustrations come far short of the actual resource that we have. These are created things and created beings. And we're talking about the uncreated one, providing the bulwark that we need for the hardship that we may face. To protect you, to strengthen you. Martin Luther knew this well. If you know anything about Martin Luther's life and the difficulty that he had and the struggle and the fear in the early 1500s, he composed probably one of the, probably, in, at least in my opinion, the most important hymn ever written, The Mighty Fortress. Uh, the poem is one you're familiar with, and you'll see some familiar themes in it. He wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Sufficient, that's what that word is, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Nothing has happened to us that's not unusual to people, right? Mortal ills prevailing are everywhere. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work his woe. His craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Let's ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, that's Lord of the armies of heaven. That's what that means. Lord Sabaoth is his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly power, no thanks to them, abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is what? There's enough grace, more than enough, and plenty. But, beloved, you won't know it unless you allow sanctification to remake your thinking. You have to start with the right questions. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be stamped in the world's image but be 
transformed by the renewing of your what? You've got to start thinking differently about the way the world works and the way suffering works and hardship. You can't bring in the world's philosophies and the world's answers and somehow expect to have peace and to grow and be where you need to be. So that you may prove what the will of God is and which, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As long as you're thinking the world's thoughts about how unfair everything is or you're running to the world's solutions and immediate relief and the world's answers to your problems, you'll never know the grace and the answers that are available to you. See, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us some of the most amazing words written in the New Testament. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. So what is missing in that statement? In life and in godliness. Do you have everything from his divine power? You have to answer yes, you do. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, you have come to faith and by nature of your relationship to God, you have everything you need for life and godliness. For by these, verse 4, that's his divine power and glory and excellence. He has granted to us, mark this, his precious and magnificent promises. That word magnificent is the Greek adjective megas. It's used over 200 times in the New Testament. It has a number of applications. But as you look at the word, its impact is predicated by rank. So obviously the higher the rank, the more the impact Someone who is eminent for ability, for virtue, for authority, for power. And who would that be? That would be the Lord, right? And so these promises are, because of their source, esteemed highly for their importance. In other words, they rise to the top. What's most important? Well, these promises God has given us. And these promises are in relation to everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. His promises are over all things that are proud and presumptuous and full of arrogance and derogatory to the majesty of God. See, everything, all the other world's promises, every solution that you may have from the world's philosophies uh, and humanistic worldly uh, look at life. Listen, his promises are above all those things. So by, by them, verse 4, that's the purpose of these promises. You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You have the ability, because of the precious promises of God and the, his divine power, which has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, that you can be partakers of the divine nature. Do you need the world's answers to anything that comes into your life? See, that's the question. Because we wouldn't know that in the modern church, and we certainly wouldn't know that in the world, because we are certainly seeking man's wisdom. Now, verse, four, verse 5, it says, Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith of supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, And your self-control, perseverance, your perseverance, godliness, and godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. So what are we talking about here? Well, you have everything pertaining to life and godliness, and you have precious and magnificent promises, so you can be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. And because of those reasons, 
that you have this ability because of your relationship to Christ, you are to make some volitional choices. What are they? To add to your faith moral excellence and to add to moral excellence knowledge and to add to knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness love. Now I would propose to you this. As opposed to running to a therapist and spending two hours in his office, it might be better time spent to spend about 10 hours in the Word of God and figuring out what it is in your life that's denying you the power for everything concerning life and godliness and his precious and magnificent promises so you could be partakers of the divine nature and escape the corrupted world. See, I think it'd be better if we spent some time doing that, don't you think? And then we'd really have a sounding board and a mirror to look at and say, okay, this is where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be adding to our faith moral excellence. Are we? See, sometimes if we took a few minutes and figured out what the Bible had to say about how we live, we might find that some of the habits that we have and the things that we regularly say and places that we go are not pleasing to the Lord. So it just surprise us that we don't have the power to deal with the issues that are in our life, see? That's the whole point of that. Listen to the rest of it, see, because it makes it very clear. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so it's as an active participation in your walk with the Lord, right? Not under your own power. You couldn't do it apart from your relationship to Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. But there's a volitional response, a ridding yourself of things that shouldn't be there, right? If these qualities are yours and are increasing, so that means an active participation and you're seeing some change. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you finding yourself unfruitful and useless? And when it comes to spiritual things, you can't seem to find answers to your life. You don't seem to have any direction. Beloved, it's right here. People come to me and they say, I don't know if I'm saved. Okay, that's not an unusual thing to say. The first thing I used to go is to 1 John. It was written so that you may know Jesus Christ and, and know that you have his power in your life. And then the second one is here. Right? Because you could be born again, but you could be living without moral excellence in your life. You might have a hard time with some of the things that you might not have any self-control and no perseverance, you not stick with it. You, godliness is, seems to be absent. People look at your life, they're not really sure that you're born again because of what you allow. And then you wonder why you don't know if you're saved. And everybody else is wondering if you are too. And there's no power in your life to deal with any of these things, right? Because if you're increasing in these kinds of things, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now mark it. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing in you. How do you do that? All those things we just, just got through saying. That makes certain what? His calling and his choosing. You'll know you're born again. You'll have the power that's available to deal with some of the issues. You'll start to have the mind of Christ working in you. Understand his will. Not being conformed to the world and its answers, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. For as long as you practice these things, this is an active engagement in your own quality of relationship to Christ, you will never stumble. Unless it's a really bad problem, then you're going to have a hard time. You will never stumble, for in this way the entrance market to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In other words, as you look down the line where you're headed, you know exactly where you're going. You're going to a home in heaven eventually, but you're, go you're walking with the Lord along the way. And it's very clear. There's not a doubt there. 
Why? Because you're participating in sanctification. You're allowing the Lord to purify you. These things are being added. But if you're not there, then it always looks very murky, and I'm not really sure I'm saved. You know, most people say that. A lot of people say that when they're caught in sin, right? When they're finding themselves doing these kinds of things it says not to do, and then they're like, man, I, yeah, it's going to be hard to know. Quench the Holy Spirit in your life. You've got a bunch of these problems. You're looking to the world for answers. God's not pleased with that. Sanctification helps you grow. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, kindness, those things will help you recognize the wonderful, powerful promises for you. But you won't know them unless you can just accept the hard times and hard people and let God pour out his grace and fulfill his promises. And you'll find yourself, beloved, and you'll find yourself as you start to do that, singing in the strangest of places and times. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul and Silas. Beaten with a rod, thrown in jail, locked in stocks. In the middle of the night, they're sitting there complaining that they're Romans and they shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened to them. Is that what they were doing? No, that's not what they were doing. They were singing, and everybody heard them. There was a significant difference between their reaction to difficult times and that of the world. And shouldn't there be? But yet, this is the grace that gets poured out of them. It wasn't because they were superhuman. They were in a very difficult time, and they recognized it was from the hand of the Lord. And he brought to them songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And that happens, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that when you're in a hard time and you're really trusting the Lord about it? You're just kind of drawn to spiritual things and maybe spiritual music and, and it, you just want to saturate yourself with it. And you're seeking the Lord in prayer more. Guess what? That's, those are precisely the things he wants you to do. Those are good things. Apart from the, the character reformation he may be doing and the purging he may be doing, those other things are good things, see? And, and, beloved, you'll find peace in your heart that doesn't know any explanation. Have you met people like that? They're in the middle of difficult times, and they have perfect peace about it. They don't understand why they're going through it. They don't understand uh, all, the, all the ins and outs of all of it. And they, they recognize it's coming from a certain place, but they have peace. And they'll have joy that's disconnected from the circumstances because this grace gives you the power to be different, see? Paul says the, to, to the Philippian church, one uh, passage you're very familiar with, rejoice in the Lord unless things are really tough. Rejoice in the Lord always, and in case you didn't get it the first time I said it, re again I say, yeah, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, because the Lord is near. You can rejoice because the Lord is near. He's especially near, and we know this, to the brokenhearted, to the powerless, and to the weak, isn't he? Because then his power can be seen, particularly near to the brokenhearted. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing unless it's really complex and you're unsure the Lord can handle it and then you need to run to a therapist. No, be anxious. Don't worry about these kinds of things. What do you do? The first thing Paul did, I sought the Lord. Seek the Lord. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God which is beyond your understanding of the circumstances and you don't know why you're suffering, you don't know why you have this health issue, you don't know why this person betrayed you, you don't understand why you haven't got an advance, you, you, don't, know, you don't know. But the peace of God still guards your hearts and minds, right? Grace changes you, see? When you're in a position where the Lord can pour out his grace, it gives you the strength that you need. It gives you the power that you need. You know, Paul was in his deepest suffering. These are not, these are not easy things. Paul was in a, in a difficult crisis that wasn't going to end. We always hope our hard times are going to end, right? We hope that that'll be the case. Paul knew it wasn't. God was using it to put his grace on display. 
And beloved, when that happens, that turns you into a worshiper, doesn't it? Doesn't it? When you're having a hard time, have you ever had a better worship time than when you're having a hard time? Usually not, right? And, and beloved, God wants you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not just singing the songs with Alex, you know, and kind of going through the motions, but really worshiping. All my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. And every breath that I'm able, I want to sing of the goodness of God, right? You can do that when you realize the Lord's grace is all sustaining you, right? You can't fully worship Him. You wouldn't know the abandonment of joy and, and of the abandonment of heart that Paul and Silas knew in jail unless you had sufficient grace in the midst of difficult times and sufferings. And sometimes the people who worship God most deeply, and we don't know this, right? There's no way for us to judge the authenticity of worship. I'm just saying this is how the Lord accepts worship to Him. That's all we know. I don't know. You can't check in with me. You know what I'm doing. I don't know what you're doing. But, you know, sometimes... People who worship God most deeply are the ones who've been through the deepest waters and who have been flooded by His grace. So uh, when we have the deepest troubles of life and we go through these things and we go through those unfulfilled relationships and brokenheartedness and unsatisfied desires and we suffer from those who should love us the most, remember that God is at work. And we shouldn't be asking the world to fix it because it can't fix it. And no matter what it is, from a small annoyance in a day routine to a major issue, God is using it to draw you to himself, to humble you, and reveal your spiritual condition. And you can find that out by what your first response is. Is it blame and frustration and, and uh, why me? Why am I having to go through this? It's not fair. Or is it the whine of, hey, Lord, even though I don't like this, I know you want to teach me something through it. And I kind of wonder, beloved, myself included, how many times I've had to repeat difficult things over and over again because I didn't learn the lesson the first time. And so here we are cycling back around and we're going to go through this again because I was too stiff-necked and hard-hearted to figure it out. It was from the Lord. And he wanted to teach something to me and he wanted to, he wanted to purify me. And he wanted to change my character, see. So whether that's that small annoyance or a major issue, God's going to use it to draw you to himself. That's what he wants, to humble you, to reveal your spiritual condition, to put his power on display, and to get rid of the you power so his power can be clearly seen. And as the Lord continues to sanctify us, we too can be well content with things that show up in life. That's how that works, see. And, and listen, and this is the last, really the last point. This is really what I went through, kind of reviewed some of that, and that's new, some of it's new. But um, to get to this point right here, we're going to wrap up with this, just a few minutes. The way you handle the things as a believer is going to separate you from the world, okay? It should separate you from the world. We are not supposed to manage our lives according to the world's patterns. If we can say anything about the Lord's instruction from the time his people went into the promised land, where he said, you will not do the things that the nations who lived in that land before you did. Did he not say that? Over and over again. You shall not do this, and you shall not do that, and I want you to separate this way, and I want you to be clear that you're going to be like this. And, and all through the scriptures, we are not supposed to act like the world does. We're not supposed to take the world's answers. We're not supposed to pattern ourselves after those who are ungodly. Are we? 
I mean, that really sums up the Christian life, doesn't it? Those who are called by Christ, we're not to live that way. We're not to manage our lives according to the world's pattern. So it becomes, I think, the capstone of the argument. Aren't we supposed to be separate? The whole of Christianity calls us to separation. Every area. And God has given us another pattern to follow. Do you remember Paul's letter to the Romans? And we, we uh, went verse by verse through this years ago. Verse 1 says this of, of chapter 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as apostle, mark it, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was what? Set apart. So he's not going to live his life like he did as a Pharisee. He's not going to live his life as he did as a Jew that was unredeemed. He is set apart for the gospel. He's moved over. He's going to manage his life in a completely different way. And then skip down. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring out about the obedience of faith through all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So not only Paul, right? Not only Paul. But you and me, we're supposed to be separate, are we not? We were called by Christ to be separate. You're separated unto Christ, and that means we function under a different commander and a different set of guidelines, and that shouldn't surprise us, and the world will think we're foolish, and, and, uh, and that shouldn't surprise us either, right? That the world thinks we're foolish. But, beloved, it's not foolish and it's not simple to say that our resource and our supply come from a different source. But, unfortunately, in the church today, many think that. The very idea that the believer's separation evokes this image of a Pharisee with a holier-than-thou. Oh, you're just, you know, you're just so much holier than everybody else. You get this perfect life, right? Or you're a simpleton and you don't under, understand basic human psychology. If you think that the Bible has the answer for your life. Anybody heard those answers? Oh, I attract those answers all the time. What a simpleton. You think the Bible is going to explain all the answers to life? Uh, yes, I do, actually, because the resource is uh, untapped. Yes, because I have everything I need for life and godliness. Yes, I do think that. I do think that the Lord's equipped the church to help people. I do think that we have the resources we need. The real problem is, is when the church goes directly to the world to be solved immediately and give all those solutions, and then that's not working and they're worse than they were, and now you're trying to say, hey, come on back, come on back. And some things are irreversible, right? And some things are they're a burden to you for the rest of your life. So it's not foolish to say, hey, all the answers are there. It just sounds foolish to the world. But separation is part and parcel of being a believer, isn't it? And it applies here too. Something must be stood for and something must be stood against, right? He who's not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me, what? Scatters, right? I mean, as much as we desire to live peaceably with all men, Hebrews 12, 14, we will inevitably find ourselves standing apart from the world and from professed religious people, won't we? Who will not submit to what the Word of God says. Christian counselors who don't know what it says and give you advice that doesn't line up with what the Word says. And, and I'm bringing this because I've had to deal with this over the last couple of weeks. Even in the midst of this study, you know, people tell me, well, my, my counselor told me to do such and such. I'm like, and, and I've just found in general that unsought advice is unheeded advice. I mean, okay? I mean, it just pretty much just bounces off of them. They're, they're not, they weren't looking to me for advice. But I'm like a bull in a china closet, and I'm going to give it to you anyway because if, if, it, if it separates itself from the Word of God, then I'm just going to say that's not what the Word of God says. And, um, and that's what I said. You do realize that what that person told you to do directly violates two commands from the Word of God, and here they are. And yet, you did it anyway, and I'm not blaming you. I'm blaming him. All right, you followed. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you feel better when you did it? No. Is that surprising to you that you don't feel better for doing that? 
See, and this is a constant cycle, beloved, and we have a responsibility in our families and our, our friends to deliver them, if they call themselves believers, deliver them from the answers that the world will provide. They won't provide any answers. They just create more clients and more bondage. And, you know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is Paul talking to the church, that you keep away from every believer who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Listen, they're unruly. That shows that they're not walking closely, perhaps not a believer, and they won't obey the commands of the Lord. Are you supposed to hang out with them? No, you're not. Let alone take advice from them, see? And the difficulty, this is it, with the lack of practicing the believer's separation from the world, which, you know, has no more apparent than our look at the way believers are to handle hard times is... That professed Christianity has not been grounded with this scriptural concept. That the answers are there. They've not been grounded. And they don't read their Bible, so they don't know the answers. You know, remember Psalm chapter 4, verse 3, Know the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. Right? Set apart. Our election by God has separated us from all of the patterns of the world. See, lifestyle choices and priorities and how we handle difficulties. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Justin read that this morning, and I'll receive you, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Right? What's that mean? Well, don't grab onto the world and all the stuff that the world provides for you. That's not what I want. Come out from among that. And we're to conduct ourselves as those who love not the world, 1 John 2, 15. Don't love the world or the things in the world. And yet, sometimes we live in the world constantly and entertain ourselves with worldly things. And then wonder why we have no power over any of the even minor problems in our life, let alone the difficulties. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. What's in the world? Oh, some good things and good answers and good books. No. What's in the world? All that's in the world is the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, and the boastful fright of life. Everything, all the answers that come from the world, everything that's going to try to direct you, all comes from one of those Genesis. Okay? The world's passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We're pilgrims here, aren't we? But sometimes we act if we're at home, and we buy the solutions of the world, but 2 Timothy 3.13 tells us, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. You think that's happening now? Oh, yeah. You don't have to read very far in the news, right? I mean, I'm not that old. And it's way worse than it was when I was young. And you, no matter what age you are, you, if you're paying attention, you see things are a lot worse. Evil men, imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. This is what we get from looking to the world for answers to our problems, deceiving and being deceived, and being trapped by deception. See. We should want, you know, as we think about this, beloved, we should want what Jude 20 through 25 tells us. You know, but you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Again, a volitional response, building yourself up. Peter told us how to do it, right? Just got through talking about that a minute ago. Praying in the Holy Spirit doesn't mean some special language. It just means you're praying along with the Holy Spirit's will, right? And he's praying along with you. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Looking for that hope, right? He's going to come and get us, and that becomes, it salts everything that we do. We're looking for that re, uh, the redemption. And have mercy on some who are doubting. 
Look around you. Help. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted with flesh, by the flesh. Do your job, man. Look, look around you. Help people not be delivered over to deception. You know, if they're struggling, help them. You've been gifted, right? And the Bible has the answers. Help them discover them. And yeah, you're going to have to invest. You have to have flesh in the game. You're going to have to disciple people, right? That's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? Lead them to faith and teach them everything Jesus commanded us. And lo, I'm with you always, right? We, we forget that discipleship part. And part of the one another's is that, isn't it? And him who is able to keep you from stumbling, make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority for all time, now and forever. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion. Who has dominion? Who has authority? Who's able to keep you from stumbling? Who's able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy? Therapist? Psychologist, a great new book by Dr. Oz. No, no. Deliver people from the flesh and the world and its desires. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority belong to God and are available to us through Jesus. And we have a responsibility to help each other avoid the deception because it's insidious. See, it's insidious. So we help as we're equipped by the Spirit and we, Galatians 6.2, what? Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Are you able to bear the burden? Of course you are. Are you equipped to help someone in time of need? Of course you are. Are you able to comfort them as Christ has comforted you? Of course you're able to. Do you, are you equipped for everything for life and godliness? Yes, you are. And guess what? Magnificent promises. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ while we are keeping oneself unstained by the world. Always keeping watch over what we're allowing, right? And the only means by which the Christian can maintain the separation unto the Lord from the world, mark this, is by abiding in the word of God. Jesus prays for his followers in John 17, 15, and he says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. How's that going to happen? Mark it. Sanctify them in the truth. What? Yes. Your word is truth. How are we going to keep kept from the evil one? How are we going to know deception? How are we going to know truth? Your word. And that makes sense, right? Separation from the world's schemes and the world's wisdom, which is, by the way, foolishness to God, 1 Corinthians 3.19. The world's solutions. Psalm 119, verse 63, I am a companion, the Lord says, of all who fear you and those who keep your precepts. Psalm 73, 24, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. We don't want, listen, we don't want to lose God's blessing and his power and his grace that he wants to give by doubting that he's strong enough and capable enough to give it. So when we come and we have that problem, then we're like, I'm not sure you, I'm not sure I'm going to find this answer. Don't expect you're going to receive anything from the Lord. That's exactly what James says, right? An unstable man is, uh, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So we don't want to lose God's blessing, his power, his grace, but that's precisely where many of us live. 
We've lost that blessing. We've lost the power. And we've lost the grace. Why? Because we don't believe that he has the power to deliver us. We're separated from the world, right? There's no world that the answers are going to help us. Far better it would be that we be separate from sinful and disobedient and deceitful and deceived men and women than lose the fellowship and blessing from God. So you can see that we didn't get to any of the groundwork of our new passage. I'm not going to apologize. I, I think that as I was, I mean, I wrote that at the beginning, and then as I got in the message, I just knew that we should be here one more time. And in my personal private quiet time, I've been reading through the book of Hebrews. You might know that if you uh, follow those postings on uh, Brian Journey page or um, our website or, or uh, uh, Instagram. But I read a passage and uh, repeated in Hebrews 11.5 from Genesis 5.24. It's one that you've read before, no question. Um, um, I love the Hebrews repeat of it just because it adds a few lines which helps to clarify. But I just want to read it to you. You can read it with me on the, on the back screen. Here's what it says, verse 5. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. And th that's, you know, obviously a wonderful thing to think about. And it's a precursor to the rapture, of course. The rapture is not without its examples in the word of God. Uh, Enoch got to go without dying, okay? That's not surprising. We expect some of us will get to do that someday when Christ comes and calls us. But Enoch got to go. And then it says, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was what? Pleasing to God. And then verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And I was thinking as I read the passage, what kind of witness did he have? I mean, that's a pretty cool witness. I mean, right? And I think we would all like to say that we live our lives to please God, right? Wouldn't we say that? We'd like to glorify God with what we do. I mean, and, and you know the answer to that. Glorifying God is only to the extent that his attributes are visible in you, right? You, you can't just pick whatever you want to do. I'm doing this all for the glory of God, right? You know, I'm opening a bicycle shop, and it's for the glory of God. Well, yeah, as long as the bicycle shop reveals to people that you have God's attributes showing through, the way you do business and all that, yeah, sure, it will be glory to God. It's not automatic any more than being pleasing to God is automatic, right? I want to live my life pleasing to God. Okay, well, you, we've just covered a number of passages that tell you precisely how to do that. And I'm not talking about positional holiness. The Lord is pleased with you in the fact that Christ paid your debt and paid my debt, and God looks at us through Christ and accepts us as his children, and we call him Abba Father. I'm talking about positional holiness. Not talking about positional, but practical holiness, how we walk, right? And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. For he obtained the witness that before he was being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So the question is, what kind of witness did he have? Because he was found pleasing to God. Well, how do you think that happens? Well, by faith, right? That's the clarification of verse 6. By faith, then and now. Faith that God wants us to live separate from the wicked world around us. Enoch understood that, right? He was in a world headed for the flood, right? The Lord was going to destroy the whole world except for eight people. So I would say he was in a pretty difficult time, wouldn't you say? If the Lord thought the answer would be to wipe the world clean except for eight righteous people and start again, he's in wicked times. Probably a lot more wicked than we're in currently, I would say. To live separate from a wicked and holy world. That's not unusual. We see that all the way through the scripture. Faith that 
God can deliver. Faith that he is able to do what he says he can do. Faith that, according to this passage, he is a rewarder of those who seek him that way. And it's no different today, is it? As it relates to his ability to pour out the grace you need for whatever you're facing, you're separate from the world, you're not worried about what the world's answers are, you know that you have the answers available to you, and you're seeking those, and more importantly, saying in the difficult times, whether it's just a temporary annoyance or a, a lifetime difficulty, okay, Lord, I know you want to make me different with this, and I'm okay with that. God is well pleased with that, and so then you can be well content. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Lord, I thank you today for a chance to be together with, uh, with Brian, to worship together, to, to pray, and to sing, and to be in your word, and to just do all these things in fellowship. I'm so grateful for our bond in Christ. Uh, for Jesus' payment on our behalf, for you drawing us to yourself and for us coming to faith and repentance. Lord, we thank you for the blessings of that and our position uh, before you, which is unshakable, and we inherit a kingdom that doesn't fade away. And for that, we are grateful. And so, Father, as we think about these things, and many of these things are reiterations of things we've said, and just um, passages to help us understand them a little more deeply. Father, I just pray that you'll fill in the gaps. We want to be people like this. We don't do it as consistently as we'd like, but we'd like to, as we grow older in the faith, to do it better. In the difficult times and hardships, and some of them are very temporary, many of us will probably not have to go through any really hard things. We probably won't be put to death for our faith or any of those kinds of things, and yet um, we can learn from hard times if we ask the right questions first. What is it you want to teach me, Lord? This is certainly unfair. This is certainly, um, this person's being unkind. This person betrayed me. They, they talked about me. They, they insulted me, whatever. But I want to handle it like you want me to handle it, and I know that you want to teach me, and you want to grow me, and you want to make me different, and help us to be those kinds of people. And we need help. We need faith, and we know that you have grace ready to be poured out. Help us not to doubt that. So that uh, as we grow, as we add to our faith these kinds of things, um, that pathway to glory is not hidden, either from us or for those who watch. As we go out and travel, I pray that we'll be faithful witnesses. If we're traveling somewhere, Lord, I pray journey mercies on those who are getting into cars and moving. Lord, I pray that you give them a clear witness, help them not to forget time is short, that your rapture is very close that as we look at the world, we know nothing is standing in the way of, of the catching away. And Father, I pray that give us an urgency to make sure that we give the gospel to uh, those that we say we love. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake and all God's people said.